Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Jeffrey Rediger is the medical director for the McLean Southeast Adult Psychiatric Programs and an instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He has a Master's of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary and publishes in the fields of medicine, psychiatry, and spirituality and is the author of what I will call a must-read new book titled Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing. This is such an important book coming at such an important time. And uh, Jeff, it's great to have you here to discuss all the incredible work you're doing. Well, I'm so happy to be here. So being at Harvard and your background, you don't necessarily have the... uh, the stereotypical path of, of someone talking about spontaneous healing. Um, and there aren't many people with your credentials talking about it. We've talked about Lisa Rankin and Kelly Turner. I, I love and have been on the podcast. Um, so let's start with, you know, what led you down this path of studying spontaneous remission for almost you know 17 years? Well, I think it was uh, started probably a long time ago when I was a kid in some ways, because I had a, complicated background, came out of a deeply rural Amish background, and so very rural. And it was restrictive in a lot of ways. And so that started in me a journey when I was young of asking a lot of questions and trying to find answers. And that took me through seminary and then eventually into medical school. After finishing residency, I was approached by a nurse at Mass General, an oncology nurse, actually. She came to me and said that she had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and she wanted my help explaining this diagnosis to her son. She then went to a healing center and began calling me saying that she was seeing some amazing recoveries and was hoping I would look into it. Given this dual background that I have in uh, theology and philosophy and medicine, she thought I'd be able to look at this um, more carefully. But I was skeptical. I didn't think anything was likely to be going on, so I declined. I was a new young faculty member at Harvard and a medical director, and um, not only was skeptical, but also concerned about what my colleagues would think of such a pursuit. But Nikki was persistent, and I owe a lot to her persistence. She began having people call me from around the country and elsewhere asking me uh, if I would listen to their stories and did I want to see their medical evidence? I again said no, uh, but eventually, as these files were mailed to me, um, I began to look through them. Most of them I couldn't make a lot of sense out of because they'd gotten chemotherapy or radiation or other forms of treatment, or their illness was something that the natural progression is such that it's possible uh, that there was an explanation for how they recovered. But there's a few stories that this stories weren't possible um, according to all that we currently understand and what I had come to understand as a physician. And so eventually I did decide to look into it. And I had three strict criteria. I told people that I would not look at their stories unless they had a genuinely incurable illness according to all that we currently understand. Number two, they had to have genuinely indisputable evidence for accurate diagnosis and clear evidence for recovery. And number three, there had to be no other good explanation for how they got better, whether it was with an experimental medication or anything else. So those are the criteria that I hewed closely to. 
And it was quite a winnowing process in the early years and uh, quite confusing because there's a lot of chaff to separate from the wheat, so to say. And a lot of the stories were very confusing. But after a while, things began to become more clear. And in the last 17 years, as I've watched these people uh, tell me their stories, as I've examined the medical evidence, as I've listened to what they have to say and began to see the factors associated with their recoveries across a wide range of diagnoses, I've come to see that what these individuals are doing with their health and their well-being is so fundamentally different than what I, as a doctor, had been trained to do with patients, both as a physician and psychiatrically. So it's changed the way I view so many things. And it's drawn me into the circle of people like yourself who have come to understand these factors through your own routes. So there's a lot to unpack there. So one, you know, what I, one of the things I loved about the book is there are so many powerful stories of healing. Uh, and then there are also some themes of what some yeah. of these people, you know, qualities they had, patterns of how they recovered. So I'm curious, you'll start with the stories. There's so many great ones, but is there one in your mind that really stands out that you can share? And then two, let's let's talk about some of the the commonalities that the people people uh, shared. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many stories that have impacted me deeply. And so to choose one story is difficult for me, but I chose Claire to open and close the book with for a reason. And so I'll tell her story. I think it's a very powerful story. Her story is so clear and tells so many different aspects of what this whole thing has been about uh, for so many people. Claire was diagnosed in 2008 by biopsy with pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Pancreatic adenocarcinoma is the worst form of pancreatic cancer that exists. It's a death sentence. Um, and for those who know a little bit about pancreatic cancer, it is... Uh, usually, if it's not caught early, it's a short, brutal end. Uh, it's a tough disease. And so she was diagnosed in 2008 by biopsy with pancreatic cancer, told that she had a matter of months to live. And I, I, one of the reasons I think I've learned so much from Claire is that she's there's something about her telling of the story that just touches the universally human. She went through a lot of the stages of uh, what so many of the people I study have done. She expected to die. Uh, she has a website, though, also for those who are interested. And I, that's one of the reasons why I use her story frequently when I talk, because for those who want to dig more deeply into the things we're talking about, they can go to her website on their own and, and go more deeply. It's called livingwithpancreaticcancer.com. And it shows so clearly uh, all the different things that she tried and did. So Claire, upon being told that she had a matter of months to live, she decided that unlike her uh, past decisions, where she had always done what doctors recommended and followed prescribed treatments, uh, she decided she was going to do something differently. This is a woman who believes in science, uh, who believes in traditional medicine, but she decided, given that she only had a matter of months to live, she wanted to focus on spending the rest of her time with those she loved and not spend those remaining months in a doctor's office with other patients who were dying. She decided 
to forego surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, not because she didn't believe in those things, but because they told her they weren't going to ultimately change her trajectory anyway. She was still going to die. The best they could do was add a few months to her life. And she decided, after researching what the surgery would entail, uh, where it would remove large sections of her gut and leave her with side effects and pain that she wasn't sure was going to be the kind of quality of life that she wanted in her remaining time. Uh, she chose to not do that, and she uh, made similar decisions with the chemotherapy and radiation. Well, uh, she was then uh, surprised that she continued to live. In 2013, she had an abdominal CT for unrelated reasons and was shocked to find that the cancer was no longer there. Wow. And so uh, her website details just so many of the things that she went through and explored. She ended up changing her nutritional level a great deal. Um, it wasn't that she gave up all sugar uh, or all refined flours or all meat, but she, she really changed her pattern of nutrition a lot to emphasize fruits and vegetables. And she began to eat the kinds of foods that made her feel better, that helped her feel like her best self. And uh, she changed her attitude towards food. She didn't focus on what she was giving up. She focused on the nutrition that she was adding to her body, which I think is a really important distinction. Um, she did some exercises on what it means to face death. Um, she uh, really thoroughly enjoyed the time that she had with the people she loved and she focused on those kinds of things. And so there's, there's just these few statements reflected a few of the factors that we're going to talk about more today. And she was able to accomplish her dream, which was to leave Portland and move to Hawaii with her husband and retire there. And, and, and that's what happened. So a lot to unpack there. So when we talk about these, these patterns, so here at Mind, Body, Green, we say it's one word, it's all connected. Connected. It's a blend of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being. So as you're like talking yeah. about these things, you know, mental, you're like mindset change, physical, changing the way you exercise, right. um, nutrition. So like if you were to like to summarize sort of the buckets, if you will, of and I know each individual is unique and not everyone did the same thing. There were variations just like unpack a little bit, like in those buckets sure. of the changes that, that what the people did. And, and with regards to food, you said something really interesting and you talk about this in the book. She ate to feel good. And you have yeah. stories in the book of, you know, someone going you know plant-based and other, other someone else going keto and being right. successful, but it was about feeling good. Right. And not having guilt. So like, to me, that's emotional. Yes. Uh, so maybe let, let, let's start there, like commonalities in, in those buckets and, and what these people did. Yes. Well, so one of the buckets is nutrition. And, you know, I'll tell you, you know, you'd think as a physician that I would have known more when I finished medical school about nutrition than I did. But I'm sorry to say that Myself and most of my colleagues and most of those who work in the healthcare field, including many nutritionists, I don't believe we understand nutrition. After I've seen what these people have done to attain health and the kinds of nutritional changes they've made, I've come to believe that we need a lot better 
education around what nutrition is. And so most of the people I've studied, um, there can be lots of superficial differences in terms of the dietary approaches they took, whether it's keto or all plant-based or how they approach things. But if you really look carefully at what most of the people I have studied did, what you see is they eliminated processed foods, sugars, and refined flours. Uh, and if they didn't eliminate them 100%, they eliminated them almost entirely. Uh, some of them eliminated them 100%, but I do tell purposefully the stories of, of people who sometimes would uh, go to celebrate a really meaningful event with their friends, and they would have um, cupcakes um, all dressed up erotically and all that sort of thing. And, you know, people were celebrating uh, deeply emotional things because food is a lot more than just food. Food is community. Food is soul and spirit and it's the way we share love with each other and so i think that's a really critical piece of all of this i also purposely tell the story and cured about a community in Roseto, pennsylvania who had markedly lower rates of heart disease and the doctors went in to figure out what was going on thinking they probably were eating a low-fat diet and all that and they were smoking cigars and drinking plenty of wine and having lots of beef and bacon. And so I think the emotional factors which you've raised here are critical for how we take in the food. So, so yes, I think it's, but I also tell people if you're going to eat meat, then I recommend that by and large, um, consider restricting it to a small portion of your um, total nutritional intake and not making that the centerpiece of most of your meals. Um, I myself prefer to, to make meat less than 5% of my weekly intake, but I also accept that we all come from different parts of the world. We have different microbiomes. I do think it's important that if a person is going to eat meat, that you eat animals that were happy when they were alive, not flooded with stress hormones, and grass-fed so that you get the healthier fats and not um, full of chemicals. So... Nutri you talked about nutrition, we talked about emotional well-being, which we have to come back to given, given the lack of you know, connection to others during COVID-19. What, what other commonalities are there? So another bucket, another commonality that I see over and over in these people's lives is the need to heal the immune system. One of the things I've learned um, from these individuals and this is also consistent with 30 years of good research now, is that contrary to the understanding that most of us who have been trained in Western medicine have been led to believe, a person does not have a heart problem, a blood pressure problem, a diabetes problem, a cancer problem, or an autoimmune problem. More fundamentally, that person has a chronic inflammation problem. And so... If you want to lower the amount of inflammation in your body, then you need to heal your immune system. We have all these brilliant cells and cell subtypes that want to do their job crisply and efficiently, but we need to give them the proper conditions. And in Western culture, I think we're very poor at doing that. We're, the United States, for example, it ranks close to the bottom of industrialized nations in terms of health, and there's very clear uh, pathways about what we need to be doing differently, both in regards to our general health 
and also in regards to issues like the COVID-19 pandemic. So how can you strengthen your immune system? That's a big factor. Doing so will uh, lower the inflammation in your body. Inflammation, by definition, is an immune system that's gone awry. And uh, so just a few pieces of that briefly are you got to lower the amount of toxins in your body. You've got to not over-medicate. It's important to flush your lymphatic system regularly with lots of water. Back to the emotional stuff, which is such a critical piece of this. Spend time with people you love who make you laugh. That's a huge piece of what makes life worth living, and it's also what fires up the immune system so that those immune cells work crisply and efficiently. And getting plenty of rest is also important. You know, with regards to to inflammation and the immune system, uh, a couple questions. So, like, what are the, you know, what are we getting so wrong there? (laughs) Yeah. And, you know... What are the labs? What are the markers? Like, how do we know uh, if we're chronically inflamed? You know, does it, what, what, what types of lab work? Other than, you know, some people will say, you know, I've talked to Kate Shanahan, the doctor, about this, and she yeah. said at the highest level, you know, brain fog and always hungry are, are two telltale right. signs. But like, what I'm curious in your opinion, like, if we wanted to, you know, take a lab, like, what are the things to sort of look for? That would indicate because what she would also say, and I've heard other people said, is you could appear, and you've talked about this, but people who appear to be healthy and fit yeah. end up having a disease that they don't want to have, and they start to say, "Why me? I didn't. I don't. I don't get it. I'm healthy. I don't understand." Right. So, what, right. what's your take? So, there's a lot of ways we can approach this. Let me start by telling a story. So, as as I've watched this whole COVID thing unfold, I've been thinking back to a story that I tell in Cured. I talk about the whole beginning of the germ theory story. I talk about how Louis Pasteur discovered that he proved that germs exist back a few hundred years ago. And that was a great discovery. Um, It proved that, uh, you know, I mean, cure is about spontaneous remission, right? And, And showing that there's nothing spontaneous about spontaneous remission. Well, what Pasteur proved was that there's nothing spontaneous about spontaneous generation. Because at that time, everybody believed in spontaneous generation that these Illnesses just appeared out of the blue, and he proved that there is these microscopic germs that cause or that are very fundamentally related to disease. So that began to create the possibility for a public health pathway around uh, germs. Now, so he he proved that, but his uh, colleagues, Claude Bernard and a few others, uh, said actually it's not quite that simple. It's germs do exist, yes, but the germs aren't the problem. The germs are the symptom of a problem when they're attracted to disease tissue, but they don't cause the disease tissue. And so, for example, they use the analogy that mosquitoes are attracted to squalid water, but they don't create the squalid water. And they said that your gut, what we now call the microbiome, they called the terrain. They said, your terrain, if your terrain is healthy, if you take care of your terrain, it will be very difficult for you to get sick because those microbes, whether it be bacteria or viruses or um, fungi, those will not be able to take root in your system 
if your terrain is healthy. And so they talked about the balance of good and bad microbes, ones that keep you healthy and that you need versus those that destroy health. And they said, if you keep that garden within your gut balanced and healthy and you cultivate it well, then you're not going to get ill very easily. And Claude Bernard took a glass of cholera. You know, we've all heard of a cholera epidemic. And he drank the glass of cholera in front of his students and said, I'm not going to get ill. And he didn't. And so the cholera plague, which killed so many people, didn't affect him. And he anecdotally proved his point by saying, if you take care of your terrain, you're not going to need to worry about getting ill in the same way. Well, history shows that we took the path of uh, Louis Pasteur, whose philosophy was nuke the microbe, whether that be a, a bacteria or a virus or whatever. And we did not take the pathway of cultivating a healthy terrain. Well, now we have 30 years of microbiome research, which um, we now, what they call the terrain, we now call the microbiome. And the microbiome research, I think, is really important. And it's a whole paradigm shift from the way we have been assuming the germ theory to be for the last several hundred years, because the microbiome, I'm assuming that many of your listeners probably are, have some familiarity with that. Sure. We love the microbiome here at MyBuddy Radio. Oh, okay. I, I, <laughs> love it, love it, love it. And, and that's a really, really deep uh, area of investigation. And that research is really compelling. And it's shocking to me that it has not yet been assimilated in the way it needs to be into the hospital and clinical uh, communities that I'm a part of, because I think that's a life-changing, uh, paradigm-changing approach. So there's a couple things you, you said, which I think are, and look, COVID is like, it, suffice to say, is complicated. Yes. And you brought up a couple of things that immediately came to mind. So one, we're talking about the microbiome and where my head went is, okay, the skin biome. And sanitizer, if you will, is the cost of you going in the hospital and doing what you need to do or people traveling. And it's, it's the, the cost of, of living, so to speak. You kind of need it. And with that said, everyone can agree that sanitizer kills. It's like, the, it's like nuking your hands. And, we, right. we, and Western and everyone can agree that the, the biome in your skin is a real thing. And right. we're, we're destroying it and it is what it is. So like, I'm curious what you think the, the long-term, if we're just talking about the skin, you know, and the hands, like what do you do there and what are the long-term implications? And I'm curious, what do you do to your hands after you have to <laughs> douse them with sanitizer? Do you rub them in, you know, coconut oil? I'm curious what you do. Well, so I have a developing sort of journey that's been continuing to evolve for me as I've been listening to these people for years and going more deeply into the microbiome research. You know, I believe, I play along with things. I mean, I go into patients' rooms all day long, both in the medical hospital and in the psychiatric hospital, because I'm medical director at McLean and a uh, chief, the chief of behavioral medicine at Good Samaritan Hospital. So, yes, I am actually quite uh, careful to wash my hands or use the sanitizer outside of each patient's room when I leave that room. Um, I do that regularly, but internally, the way I perceive that is I care so much about my microbiome and strengthening that, that I don't really worry about that little bit of sanitizer fundamentally changing my path on that. Uh, but I don't view that sanitizer as being the main route to 
health, if that makes sense. <laughs> and so I'm like right now, I'm wearing masks because I think that's what is such a big part of the philosophy that's ruling all of this. But internally, what I'm thinking is, okay, these viruses are orders of magnitude smaller than the holes in the mask, uh, the, the microscopic holes. And so isn't this a little bit like um, um, putting, putting up a chain link fence to keep out mosquitoes? <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think, I think I haven't seen any good science around the masks at all in terms of their efficacy or lack of efficacy. But I don't think science is really guiding a lot of the decisions we're making right now because we don't have a very good understanding of the coronavirus and we're not looking back at uh, the research around coronavirus when it has come up in our culture before. So that's a little bit of an answer to your question. So you also mentioned the lymphatic system, which is such an important system and one we don't talk enough about. Can you just talk a little bit about why it's so critical and how it functions in maintaining our well-being and healing? Yeah, it's a really critical part of our immune system. And so all day long, our lymphatic system is flushing out toxins and it is taking um, mutated particles that would become cancer and helping flush those out of our system. I'm a big believer in good, fresh water and drinking lots of it. Most of the people that we see in the emergency room are immediately put on an IV because they are chronically dehydrated. And um, we are in hospitals, Pretty pe people pretty much know that you're going to get an IV fluid uh, bag hung next to you. And that's because, in part, because people are so chronically dehydrated. I do believe in... Um, good fresh water and drinking a lot of it every day. I drink eight glasses myself every day. I have, you know, all these little apps, you know, you have these apps. I use Fitbit a lot and I love the little thing that just lets, um, you can easily um, catch what you're drinking or they even have the, the uh, smart bottles that do that for you. And I think that's, I, I just think it's good to be flushing one system all day long. We know that headaches are often associated with dehydration uh, we know that a constipation is often associated with dehydration. There's a lot of muscle aches that people have that can be helped if they were regularly hydrated. Um, I think it's just our, I, I, the skin is different when it's hydrated well. I think there's a lot of benefits to it. So my last question surrounding COVID-19, you know, something you, you talked in the book about, which I loved, is the, the power of what, what you called fleeting moments of connection, which kind of tough to have right now to pass someone in a coffee shop and say hello. <laughs> say hello. So yes. let's segue, like, talk about the, the power of the fleeting moments of connection and just emotional connection in, you know, our world today in, in May 2020. Yes. Well, you know, I talk in Cured about uh, the research of Barbara Fredrickson, and she talks about the micro moments of positivity resonance. And I think that's such a powerful understanding that her research contains. She's this brilliant research uh, researcher at UNC Chapel Hill, and she has uh, demonstrated the power of connection, how um, important it is for our physiology when we make a genuine connection with people, make eye contact, smile, and that sort of thing. Many of us live in chronic fight, flight, or freeze, and we don't even realize 
that we are doing so. Uh, that's part of modern life for many of us, whether we're sitting in traffic, whether we're trying to figure out how we're going to get this bill paid versus another bill paid, how we're going to pay for kids in college and take care of uh, so many factors. And the physiology of fight, flight, or freeze is fundamentally different from the physiology of the parasympathetic nervous system, uh, which is related to the vagus nerve. And one of the things that Dr. Fredrickson talks about so brilliantly is how we can power up the vagus nerve. Uh, the vagus nerve is this super highway of relaxation, healing, and connection it flows through our body connects with most of our major organs. When we smile, it's the vagus nerve that is helping that happen. When we, uh, when our eyes light up and our, our eyes and our, we crinkle um, around the, um, our eyes as we make eye contact with somebody, that's the vagus nerve uh, that's working with those eye muscles. And the vagus nerve is connected with a really different physiology. We know on the basis of research that uh, if your body is flooded with the stress hormones like cortisol, norepinephrine, adrenaline, and that sort of thing, your immune cells are going to uh, become numb and they are going to um, not only work inefficiently, they will work incorrectly. They will make mistakes and, uh, and not work properly. When a person, uh, fires up the vagus nerve, either through relaxing or through making a genuine connection uh, with somebody, your physiology lights up with the, uh, the, with oxytocin, the love molecule, with dopamine, the pleasure pathway, with serotonin, the feel-good molecule, with these molecules that your immune cells love and which causes them to work crisply and efficiently uh, to get rid of the illnesses that could really plague you. And they also, when they are working crisply and efficiently, they're not making mistakes and becoming chronic inflammation, you know, because chronic inflammation is an immune system gone awry. So is it as simple as, you know, showing up to your Zoom or Skype or Google Hangout and genuinely smiling at the person at the other end? Or if you're able to get takeout delivery or takeout coffee, smiling at that person? Well, I think, I think one of the things that is true is we all need connection that fires up our nervous system in that way. So I think if it's a genuine connection where we feel it in our heart, um, whether it's love, it, and it doesn't have to be someone we know well. It doesn't have to be just our, our partner or our child or um, someone in our immediate family. Even if it's the mailman or the pizza person delivering the evening's dinner to your home, if it's a genuine connection that you can really kind of have some space in your heart for them as a human being and let that be a brief genuine connection, your physiology will be better off for it. And I think we just do better when we, we're wired to be social with each other. We need each other. One of the things that I think is a tragedy and a real problem in this whole COVID thing is I'm watching people die alone right now. Families are, are dropping off loved ones at the hospital 
leaving, not knowing whether they will ever see that person again, and they can't visit. And that's a real tragedy in my mind. So these these we're seeing a lot of older patients. Good Samaritan Hospital where I work is one of the hotspots for COVID, and so we've been mostly a COVID hospital. Uh, and that's now changing as we're reverting back to normal. But we uh, were mostly COVID for a number of weeks, and it was, I can't tell you the stories of what it was like seeing an old, older person admitted from the nursing home. They had been told weeks before that they uh, couldn't have visits from their family members any longer. They had to stay in the rooms. And for many of these older people, walking is such an important way of staying functional or doing the activities with others that are so important, whether it's playing games or whatever, to be told they need to be confined to the room and they couldn't have visitors was devastating for them. And and unfortunately, uh, and especially if you have a little bit of dementia or confusion on top of that, and they don't really understand what's going on, then all bets are off in terms of what the outcome will be. So a number of them quit eating. They couldn't figure out what was going on. So then they get sent to the hospital, dehydrated and weak. And then they get locked into a room behind a COVID door if they have the uh, if they're COVID positive, and they can only talk to staff members who come in when they can, who are gowned up with goggles on and masks on and gloves, and it's like you can't even make a human connection with the person hardly, and uh, just the tragedies that I saw around that are just heartbreaking. And that's and what we need when we're ill is we need connection more than anybody. And if, if a person is dying, they need their family more than at any other time. And so I believe they're, I think, reevaluating our relationship with germ theory is a critical piece of all of this. Um, strengthening the immune system instead of the, the approach that the whole thing is to be to nuke the pathogen. I, I just don't think that's the best approach here, but that's a deep subject. It is, and it's heartbreaking. Uh, it's, it, it really is. And I, I don't know, you know, hearing you speak, it, it's heartbreaking. I don't know what else to say. And I, you know, I, I don't know what, I don't think anyone knows what, what the answer is. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it is truly heartbreaking. And I just feel for these families and these patients then I feel for the nurses, too, and the healthcare providers who have to manage this, but the patients who are so alone and don't always know how to use FaceTime or they, they're too confused to figure out how to use the phone, it's, it's and, just a heartbreaking story. And so much of what you talk about in the book, which I love, is you know, the power of emotional connection. You talk about love medicine in quotes. Right. Uh, and it's just <laughs> sort of impossible in a, a COVID-19 world. Um, but c- can you talk a little bit about love medicine and what I also segue, like it, w- the, the power of, of faith? Yeah. So that gets into the last two pillars uh, that write about and cured. And one of those is... Um, Faith is an important antidote to the stress response. We all need help during these days learning how to manage our stress. Now, I want to be clear, not all stress is bad. I'm not talking about getting rid of stress always. I'm talking about knowing how to manage that. Some stress is good. Um, Running a marathon can be 
challenge stress if it helps you reach into your higher self and expand your understanding of what you're capable of. But if a person is in a toxic relationship or finishes work every day, depleted, run down, and questioning their value and worth, then something needs to change because you're going to be in chronic fight, flight, or freeze, and you're not going to be able to heal properly. So in that kind of situation, a person needs to either change their environment or change their response to their environment. And I think that's where a person has to really come to know themselves. Do they need to leave the toxic environment or do they need to change their relationship to it in a way that they don't have that uh, fight or flight physiology that is aging them and hurting them? And so with regards to, to faith, you also reference a fascinating study from the famous Herb Benson. Yes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, that study? Yes. Um, I don't know which study you want me to talk the one about. One in 2006. Okay. The, the one with the monkeys? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's done some amazing work. He's done a lot. Like, there's of, like so many studies. You pick. That was yes, the one I thought right. was interesting, but there are so many Herb Benson studies. So whichever, like. Right. Well, what he really did was, you know, he was working in a lab um, and the, the whole history of that is fascinating. We don't have time to go into that, but he, he proved that, um, that hypertension in animals and monkeys is not um, just a function of a kidney disease, but that it is something that can be psychologically mediated. In other words, if you can help a person relax, that can change their blood pressure. Now that was, that can help the monkeys change the blood pressure. And then he showed that you can do that with humans as well. That was decades ago. That was a, a shattering realization because we were much more disease focused during those days in medicine than we are now. And because of people like Herbert Benson, we have seen a real evolution away from believing that the illnesses are only based in bodily organs. We now know that the mind can affect the body in ways that uh, were a new way of thinking back in those days. But when he showed that these uh, advanced meditators could, could change their blood pressure through meditation, um, that was the next step after working with the monkeys. Um, that was a really important study and, and set him off on a path, his own trajectory of beginning to show how the relaxation response and getting out of fight or flight fundamentally changes the physiology and chemistry, the biochemistry of the body. And he's a huge proponent of mantra-based meditation. Yes. Uh, and the, the other one I thought was interesting was the prayer experiment and if the person knew they were being prayed for. Yes. Could you talk about that one? Yeah. Well, so, you know, you know, I, so I have this seminary degree and I'm uh, put to very good use. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm deeply interested in the power of prayer. When you look at the studies, though, it's it's difficult because half of the studies approximately support some degree of positive benefit from prayer and half the studies don't. The more tightly designed scientific studies don't support efficacy of prayer and the ones that do support efficacy of prayer have uh, some uh, problems in their study design and their uh, 
their uh, report of efficacy for prayer is actually very limited. And so Herbert Benson received a massive grant to do the largest, uh, best designed study on prayer that's ever been done. And the results showed no efficacy for prayer and even possibly some negative benefit. And so, of course, that raised all kinds of ire of what's going on here. And I think the truth is um, the only way one can study prayer is you, you have to take not only a quantitative approach, but you have to take an intensely qualitative approach because just like we know on the basis of good research, there's a massive difference in brain scans between new meditators and advanced meditators. When you look at PET scans for advanced meditators, you see a really different um, uh, display of what's going on physiologically in the brains of advanced meditators than you do for college students who are just learning to meditate. Well, I think we can uh, have a good uh, sense that there's highly likely a similar thing going on with prayer. A person can read the prayer that they've been assigned to read for the study, and that's all fine and good, but uh, there can be a massive level of qualitative difference between somebody who has uh, really gone into the depths of prayer for many decades and come to understand that is a very powerful force versus someone who is new at this um, and, and young. So, so I'm going to segue from prayer to quantum physics. Yes. And you, you have this fascinating story in the book. It, it's the double slit experiment and the observer effect. So can you just tell us what happened there? Yeah. So we're going into really deep waters here. And we have I, to, we're about, you know, we're about 40 or so minutes in, we went, we went from COVID to prayer maybe works or doesn't work depending on how, how good, a how good a person is, who's praying for you. And we, we got to go straight to this. <laughs> got to do it. Got to do it. So, you know, I have some friends who are physicists and one of the things they tell me is that they, uh, are uncomfortable with the way our culture talks about quantum physics. And so what I believe is it's, it's really important to have the quantum physicists talking about quantum physics with the rest of us because we want to be true to the best science around this and not just using these massive terms um, in a way that doesn't fit the science. So in the book, I, um, I speak with a friend of mine, uh, Andreas Merchant. He's a quantum physicist at MIT. And he helps me explain this uh, double slit experiment, which is a classic experiment that has been repeated hundreds of times over the last 80 years since quantum physics was discovered. We now know that quantum physics, the basic facts underlying it, are not theory. They are facts. And so we know that at the quantum level, that the material world does not exist in the way that we think it does. And for years, the, um, this, the Copenhagen School of Quantum Physics, which is what I was exposed to in seminary, the, my mentor who I went to study with at Princeton Seminary was writing books with physicists at the time. And, um, and so I spent a lot of time with him trying to understand these things um, at a theoretical level. What 
Dr. Mershon uh, helped me understand is that the Copenhagen School doesn't uh, hold true. The Copenhagen School uh, made it simple because it said, well, okay, so maybe the material world doesn't exist at the quantum level in the way we think, but at the macroscopic level where we touch the desk and we sit on chairs and we talk to each other, that level must follow the laws of Newton. Well, that uh, looks like those assumptions are continuing to break down. And so the quantum world, every time they step up into a larger size of study where they can look at the slit, the dual slit experiment at a larger level, um, it, the, those assumptions are still holding true. So it appears that the material world, even at our level, does not exist the way we think it does. Uh, the chair and the desk um, look and feel real, our bodies look and feel real, but more and more physicists are starting to say, well, that all looks to be the case, but it's not really the way it is. And so, you know, to start saying that the material world does not exist in the way we think it does at all, you know, that just shakes up my world crazily. And, you know, for a, for a, for a physician who's spending a lot of time trying to help people get better physically, um, it raises a lot of questions about what's real and how to be genuinely helpful. Now, we do know that a number of physicists have turned towards um, Eastern philosophy in the course of their journeys. And um, we also, I, I know that physicists have been told in graduate school, well, don't worry about the larger implications of this, just do the math. And don't, don't worry about the big picture right now. And that's kind of what I was told in medical school. I was told, don't ask questions, just do the problem sets. And I think that's how a lot of us uh, go about our uh, trainings and then our careers. We're socialized into uh, these ways of thinking, but uh, it's to ask the big questions can be really disruptive because these big questions are massive in terms of their implications. And I don't think as a culture we're completely ready for that yet. I think what's brilliant is that these um, engineers and physicists, maybe they're not asking the big questions, but they're doing their job. They're applying the math and they're creating a whole different culture for us. So the world's slowly going digital on the basis of the math that's being applied. So now we have ultrasounds, we have MRI machines, we have cell phones, we have the internet, we have all of these things that are going digital on the basis of quantum mechanics, even though we're not uh, engaging those deeper questions yet. But I think the world as it uh, see, quantum physics is very different than Newtonian physics because it assumes that the mind and body exist together in interrelationship and in reciprocity. So all this digital stuff is driving us into a mind-body connection um, and slowly helping us bridge these chasms and gaps. But uh, we, it still begs the big question, does and, the physical world exist? <laughs> yeah, and it, it's very hard for everyone to wrap our head around this concept, but you right. do have a great story in the book, which I think like is, is mind blowing about the tennis balls. Yes. Can you right. just, can you just give us the tennis ball story quickly so you can yes. wow, wow everyone with <laughs> right. and, and sort of summarize so yes. we can all try to wrap our heads around this. Yes. So Andreas helped me with this because he was trying to give me a good analogy for how these slit experiments work. He said, if you, uh, pretend that these uh, tennis balls are subatomic particles and you you take this uh, tennis ball gun and shoot them through these 
slits and then look at their distribution pattern after they pass these slits. What he was able, what these experiments show is that usually you would expect that if they go through these dual slits, that they will then bounce on the wall behind the dual slits that they pass through. They will, um, they will form a kind of interference pattern with the way, and I try to explain this uh, a little bit more clearly and at length in the book, but they, they assume this pattern that one would expect based upon Newtonian physics. Right. And what uh, turns out to be the case, to simplify this a bit, is that if, if there is a camera that is observing that experiment with the tennis balls take place, they behave differently. And so, <laughs> and so that camera doesn't even need to be connected to a person looking through the camera, but there's something about being observed that causes these uh, tennis balls, which are an analog of the semitopic particles, they behave differently if they're being observed. And so I think our human minds are slowly grappling with this kind of idea and slowly as a culture we're moving in the direction of realizing that our beliefs and our perceptions play a massive role in terms of how all of this stuff rolls out in our lives well it's mind-blowing too going back to praying you were talking about it. there's a difference in one of the, in the study you talks about it's, there's a there's there's potentially a difference if the person knows they're being prayed for Yes. There's like added pressure. Right, right. <laughs> and they were better off if they were prayed for, but they didn't know they were being prayed for. Yes. And so there, and there's other pieces to that, too, because it gets even more complicated, because what's your perception of what it's like to be prayed for? Is it a judgment associated with that? Or is it an opportunity associated with that? Is it solace and compassion that you associate with that being observed? Or is it a judgment and condemnation? And so, you know, I'm telling you, as a psychiatrist, I know that two people can be sitting next to each other on a bench in, in, in New York, in, say, Central Park. Those two people can be living in different universes, even though they're surrounded by the same environment. One person can interpret the world in front of them as a threatening place and a scary place that is unsafe. And the person right next to them can be seeing a really different reality. They will notice, they won't notice the fighter jet that goes overhead or the person standing over there who might be doing drugs and might be doing something that could be dangerous to themselves. This other person will notice maybe a mother soothing her baby in a carriage or will notice the beauty in the trees as they're changing color or notice the sunlight filtering through the trees and will be literally living in a more heavenly reality, whereas the person sitting next to them can literally be living in a hell. And so two people can interpret the same phenomena or even see this different phenomena in the same environment and have a completely different experience. Well, to me, it's it's so fascinating and powerful because on one hand, same concept we talked about earlier with with food and nutrition, do I interpret this food to be you know, right. healing or do I cringe every time I eat the kale or do I right. versus the same thing with healing? Like, do I like that this person's praying for me or do I think they're praying for me because I'm a bad person or I'm being judged? And so our perception of what we're doing and, and, and how we're feeling, it, it brings 
emotional well-being you know if we talk about like spiritual and emotional well-being truly to the forefront of well-being yes yeah yeah so as i've been thinking about these stories for so many years and i have started to pay real attention to the deep assumptions of the books that i read and and you know there's um you know i was trained in western theology for example and in western medicine and western psychiatry and i've come to realize that for thousands of years human culture has been struggling to slowly leave a deficit-based understanding of who we are in theology we have overemphasized original sin and not understood the importance of seeing each person as being sacred or even as the image of the divine for example medicine has for hundreds of years emphasized the disease model instead of looking at what's right and possible for the person psychology and psychiatry we regularly reduce problems to neurochemical defects or to childhood deficits instead of focusing on what's right for the person and helping them not live in that dark cave of the past but living in a present where they know their value they know they bring something good and purposeful into the world and helping them discover and experience that so another study you you referenced there's so many fascinating studies in the book that <laughs> alistair cunningham Yes. And you talked about conditions associated with poor survival outcomes versus those who had longer survival. Can you briefly just summarize what, what you found? Yes. So this is an area that needs a lot more research because it's a really important question. If some people do the same things uh, that some of the people that I've... So I study the ultimate achievers in health. And can a person do the same thing that they did? Will they get better? And what what do you do if they don't? Well, I think this is an unmapped area. And so there's a lot of work to be done in terms of mapping it more and more completely. Alistair Cunningham is an interesting individual. He's a psychologist who worked in a breast cancer or in a cancer clinic for decades. So he bridged that mind-body uh, domain earlier than most people did because he was um, a psychologist working in a cancer clinic. But he bridged the uh, domains in a different way. He was also working with cancer and also a cancer survivor. And so he combined the personal and the professional in a way. And I think sometimes people who've been through something personally, they understand the professional aspects of things better as well. So he did some research to uh, go deep into why some people get better and some people don't. And he's now emeritus at University of Toronto. I think his research bears more investigation and, um, and inquiry. He found that there are uh, factors that do distinguish those who get better from those who don't. And these studies are small. Uh, they need larger sample sizes and that sort of thing. But he spent over 100 hours on each research subject in some of these studies going deep into their lives, both with quantitative measures, biomedical measures, and also with qualitative measures through interviews and uh, really looking at the different uh, factors that separate and unite people. And he found out that there are some uh, fears of change. There's rigidity. Uh, there's a, um, a lack of self-esteem that can also go along with things. There can be uh, certain fears and control issues that are associated with 
with factors. And I think one of the things I've seen over the years is that sometimes a person can do all the right things and be so rigorous about it. Um, like a person can be really strict about nutrition, for example, but still be really ill. And I think that there's uh, deeper things that need to be liberated within their psyches and in their souls so that they can take in nutrition, for example, from a place of uh, healing and what they're giving themselves as opposed to what they're giving up. There's a lot of factors we're talking about here with the, the, the socio-emotional things here. And, and I think, you know, the, the East has spent thousands of years analyzing the mind and we're just 120 years into it in, in the West. So it's, it's an area that we need to continue going into very rigorously with the research. Well, it sounds like so much of it goes back to what we earlier, what we said earlier is, you know, with regards to nutrition or whatever it has been, you, you need to be operating from a place of abundance versus scarcity. Yeah. And thinking about, um, I'm taking this, it's good for me, I like it, versus I hate it, I'm stressed about it. And, you know, I, I've, I've joked, you talked about this earlier with like the velvet cupcake, you know, you're better off, I would argue that if you're going out for, you know, when we used to go out for celebrations and it's better to have the cake and enjoy it versus right. avoid the cake and be stressed about it and be angry about it and say that's that's not as good for you. And, right. Uh, so what, you know, it, it, I only have a couple more questions. I, I know we're short on time. It, it, miracles. What does science say about miracles? Because a lot of what you talk about in the book, some people say these are miracles. Mm. Well, so what I have come to believe um, after all these years is that we use words like miracles. If you're on the spiritual or religious side, you call these sorts of events uh, spiritual healing or miracles. If you're on the science side, you call this placebo or spontaneous submission. But the truth is all of these terms are black boxes that have never been unpacked with the tools of science. Science is brilliant at figuring out mechanisms. Birds fly. Well, so the early scientists were able to eventually figure out the Bernoulli principle, and now we have airplanes that fly. Um, you know, and I think science is good at going. It, 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 go, it goes in and tries to figure out what's the mechanism of this, and we need to do the same thing with miracles and spontaneous emission because it turns out that there are common factors, transdiagnostic factors across many illnesses that. Um, they have a lot to do with how these people got better, but we've never asked. We just assumed that, I mean, the word spontaneous in this sense, in this use means without cause. Everything has a cause. To assume that these events just occurred out of the blue without cause and that they have no medical or scientific value, that is an unexamined assumption that turns out to be wrong. And so I think going in and just simply talking to these people is so illuminating. Every person I've studied now for 17 years the best their doctors did when they told their doctors and their doctors would be shocked that they were getting better and the medical evidence supported they were getting better. Doctors at the best would say, well, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. It's working. Well, that's fascinating, really. What's <laughs> the curiosity? If this person is getting better from an illness that they've never seen them get better before, don't you think that would be important for us to know how they got better? That's, that's a paradigm-changing sort of deal. And yet... I think we're socialized in touch, such a strong model that if if it doesn't make sense to the way we've been trained, we just pigeonhole it and forget it, and we don't 
we're, we tend to be busy, and so we don't take the time to figure out what's going on because it would completely disrupt the way we think about things. So in closing, you know, what, what advice do you have to everyone listening who, you know, they're more or less okay, but ultimately want to live a really happy and healthy life? What are the things we should all be doing to ensure that happens? Well, I think what's true is these people are the, the ultimate achievers when it comes to well-being. These people created genuine well-being in their lives, and they didn't just get better from an illness. They, cre- they cultivated a level of well-being that is astonishing to the degree that every person I've ever spoken with who had this kind of recovery has told me they, were so, they are so grateful for the illness because it so fundamentally changed their experience of themselves in the world. We all deserve to know that we matter, to know that we bring something beautiful and unrepeatable and unique into the world, and to know that in our souls without question and to have that be the foundation of our lives instead of the structures of shame and blame that sometimes occur. And to know that consciously and subconsciously in a way that liberates you to be who you are and to not feel like you have to respond to the perceived expectations of others or take care of others so much in your life, but instead are free to live the kind of life with a level of well-being that puts a light in your eyes and helps you know you don't have to apologize at some level for who you are. That's an irreplaceable gift that this these recoveries have given people and that has been changing the way I fundamentally understand how healing happens and what well-being is. Amen to that. So it's May 2020. What do you want us to be talking about a year from now? Where do you think the, the future is? What's, what's interesting and exciting to you? What I really want is for us to get excited about creating a life where we know our value, where we know our purpose, and where we know how to set that up and we don't spend so much time taking care of others or responding to perceived expectations of others and instead we're living an authentic life that is ours where we feed our dreams and where we don't think that the cure is going to come from a vaccine the truth is it's going to come from us changing our relationship with our immune system and with ourselves so that we know our value and our immune systems can be bathed in a physiology um, that is healing rather than confusing for the immune system We'll close there. Have to close with God bless. God bless. <laughs> God bless. Thank you, Jeff, so much for all that you do. We'll have to have you back. I could talk to you for, for hours, but thank you. And th- thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.